0: Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, the Wagner Brothers podcast in which we endeavor towards depth and simplicity despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, author of The Last Letter, Karen Baum Gordon. By the fall of 2013, it had become apparent to me that regime change was imminent at MTV News. One morning, I told Abby that I'd done three things to catalyze career change. I'd hired a resume coach to sharpen my CV, enrolled in the Sulzberger Fellowship at Columbia University, and hired an executive coach to hold me accountable to my goal of having a new job by Q3. I accepted a role at Facebook later that summer. Central to that transition and many, many since is Karen Baumgordon, who in her role as faculty at Sulzberger, now the Media Transformation Challenge at Pointer Institute, coached me through the transformation of MTV News from TV-first to digital-first newsroom, and coached me through my ongoing transformation from a frazzled, unfocused, impatient media executive to a better-balanced, strengths-oriented coach, consultant, author, and musician, or something like that. Karen was born and raised in Dallas, Texas before attending Harvard. She co-founded Strategic Horizons, Inc., an executive coaching and management consulting firm, after working as a consultant at the fabled McKinsey & Co., managing NYC restaurants and training as a chef in France. Karen lives with her husband, Bob, and Black Lab Ollie in Brooklyn, New York. In her brand new book, The Last Letter, A Father's Struggle, A Daughter's Quest, and The Long Shadow of the Holocaust, Karen explores the stories and events that shaped the lives of her grandparents, two Holocaust victims that her father tried in vain to save, In the early years of World War II, the book is a painstakingly researched, heartbreaking page turner, where we are reminded that sometimes we can never go home, and we often need to let go to move on. Help me understand what it was like to be Karen Baum on Del Norte Lane in Dallas, Texas, in like you know 1972. Like when you're kind of a teenager, what's your world like?
1: So my world was growing up in the, you know, basically a very suburban part of Dallas, Texas, really in the heart of the Bible Belt in many ways. And yet there was a very strong Jewish community and a very strong, tightly knit German Jewish community. So there I was, you know, the daughter of these two refugees, which many people I knew were like my parents. But my friends were... Doing all kinds of things. And yet, there I was again. You know, I became president of my Jewish youth group. So I really had both and in my Mm -hmm. my growing up years. I even attended a Bible study group when I was, oh, about 12 or 13 years old, because I was told by my non Jewish friends, you really should join us. You should understand what we are. You know, it it was really the step to helping me become, really consider becoming not Jewish. Kudos to my parents that they really allowed me to do that and to ask tough questions of them, really tough questions, and to come out the other side with a little bit more clarity.
0: What sort of tough questions?
1: Like, why is it as Jews, we don't believe in Jesus? Mm-hmm. And how do you know
0: for sure
1: that we're yeah. not going to go to hell? Those were tough. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Those were really tough. And I think it made me um, stronger in my identity. And once I became a parent, I really appreciated what that meant for my parents to give me permission to participate in that way.
0: As opposed to sort of getting more rigid around your own beliefs and or their own beliefs. Yeah. Exactly. So your father emigrated from Frankfurt, Germany in the early days of World War II and his parents, your grandparents, remained behind. And the first half of the of your book is those correspondences and that story broadly speaking and the second half broadly speaking is you seeking to answer what happened. And you say this just beautiful line, my grandparents' desperate pleas and their deaths are forever woven into the fabric of our family. How did those stories and experiences manifest at that age? How do you temper that kind of gravitas and atrocity
1: there were two or three times a year when we lit what are known as yardside candles, which are Mm. basically um, candles in remembrance of. And those are lit on an anniversary of a passing. They're lit at a couple of appointed days in the Jewish calendar. And those candles would be lit and they would be lit for both my grandparents at the same time. Mm. And there was a real um, somberness around those moments. Similarly, we would be in synagogue and their names were read together in the list of remembering on an appointed date every year. And that was really it. Yeah. I didn't know what really happened to them. And they died on the same day.
0: How do you talk through some of that stuff at that age when you're a younger person and you're in high school?
1: We didn't really talk through the grief of my grandparents, mm-hmm. I became more and more curious through the years. I asked a lot of questions. I remember there being uh, photo albums that were tucked away on a shelf mm. with all the family photo albums. Yeah, these photo albums, there were two or three of them that you know had the the tattered black, you know pages and really disintegrating. And those photo albums had really disturbing pictures, and I remember asking about those. Mm. And those contained pictures of when my dad was part of the American Army and helped to liberate Buchenwald and stumbling upon those pictures and then asking about them that I do remember. and I have those albums today and Interestingly, those photos aren't in there. Uh, my father donated them.
0: How did you get to Harvard? And I'm interested in, in two parts of it. First, it is the sort of American standard for the epitome of higher education, right? But I, I thought to myself, like, it's kind of living well is the best revenge, i.e., like, what better hallmark of American success is there in a way than my kid as at Harvard? And I wonder how much of that calculus was even present.
1: I'm sure once I arrived there, it was very present for my parents. I think they were mm-hmm. very proud. But I will tell you, I that was back in the day when, you know, you'd apply to two or three schools. And most of my friends went to University of Texas or certainly closer to home, Oklahoma. And when I got in and decided to go, I was sort of daunted because I I really wanted to go to the University of Texas where all my friends were going. I didn't know anybody. I had only been on the East Coast once before in my life. So once I landed there, oh my gosh, I hated it. (laughs) I wanted to transfer. I desperately wanted to transfer after the first semester. I didn't know anybody who had gone to prep school. These people around me were So foreign to me. It Mm -hmm. was a really uh, unusual experience and one that took an enormous amount of adapting. And I give my father credit because my father said, you can't transfer after a semester. You have to give it a year and Mm -hmm. then let's talk about it. And that felt like a rare form of torture to me. And in the end, it was great wisdom. Yeah. And of course, I found my way and I found... I found my group of friends, dear friends to this day. I ended up joining a group of people just like me who were children of Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And that was incredibly meaningful. We all talked about from different vantage points and, of course, with our own lens and our own personal experiences, what it meant to be at this place And what the sense of responsibility was to do well and to to shine and to make the most of this. We all had different flavors of that, but we all had a very shared sense of it.
0: Yeah, I guess that's part of what I was getting at is I just imagine, and I suspect this is pervasive, but because Harvard is Harvard, it becomes a kind of talisman, that sense of like, well, I have to achieve. I have to make good. And I wonder how you reconcile what I suspect in knowing you as a personal ambition and a curiosity that makes you who you are tempered with this imperative to make good. I wonder if you felt an actual pressure in and above just whatever pressure existed at Harvard and how you, I mean, you must still, or have you reconciled that to some point? <laughs>
1: Not so much. Uh, Yes, that pressure has been and in some ways continues to be enormous. And that pressure then was the combination of, you know, here I am at one of the most blue blood institutions in the country, as you said, but, you know, symbolic of so many things. And it was the ultimate in my parents having, quote, arrived. I
0: mean, Mm -hmm,
1: my parents were high school dropouts. Yeah. I did feel that responsibility.
0: Right. That's a better word. I didn't mean pressure. Thank you. Responsibility.
1: I did feel that responsibility, uh, which I think I, I have continued to feel hence this book coming into being part of that.
0: Yeah. There's this whole chapter in the food industry that I remember you telling us about, but I don't know anything about how that happened. So I'd love to know, like, did that happen prior or concurrent or sort of in sequence with the sort of pursuit of ongoing higher education, or was there a sort of sidebar between Harvard and Columbia where you got your MBA?
1: So the food industry piece is, is interesting because that love of food really came from my parents and my father in particular. On, on Saturdays, we would have just the smorgasbord of of all kinds of things. We would just empty the refrigerator and those are terrific Uh, German deli food store, I should say, that exists in Dallas, Kubi's. And my dad was very close to the owner of Kubi's. And we would have all these wonderful foods from there and really unusual. And My lunches at school were, you know, when you took school lunches, you know, the best part was trading. Well, nobody would trade with me because I had (laughs) things, you know, I had liverwurst and I had, oh, things that people were like, really? Oh, I'm not trading with you. But my (laughs) love of interesting foods really developed. And in high school, my first job was in a restaurant waitressing. And then that evolved into I did a stint even cooking in the kitchen one very hot summer when I went to college, I got a part-time job working in, again, a restaurant that was uh, partly owned by a different writing counselor at Harvard. Wow. I wrote my senior thesis on the criteria people judge restaurants by.
0: Um. So food
1: continued to be very present for me. And after college, I, I really wanted to train as a chef. And that's what I yeah. did. I, I went off and uh, spent time in Europe, in uh, France, and in England. And I trained as a chef. And then I came back here and worked in restaurants for nearly eight years. Right, wow. Business school purely to learn business to open my own restaurant. Uh-huh. But the food theme for me has always been strong. Whenever I travel, that is really strong. When I did the travels for this book, nothing made me happier than uh-huh. being in those German restaurants or, or learning about the Polish food in the Polish restaurants
0: we tend to gather right for food and it's a real sharing time often. Right. Is it, is that a component or is it truly just like, ah, oh, I love good flavors?
1: No, it's a huge component. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked me that because actually my favorite uh, Jewish holiday is Passover, but I, mm-hmm. I love all the Jewish holidays because I always gather loads of people at our home And it has become this tradition and nothing makes me happier than cooking and preparing and having the gathering of either in my home or in, you know, the home of of sister-in-laws and brother and sister and brother-in-law. It makes me very joyful to be with family and friends gathering around actually very traditional
0: foods. I once interviewed years ago, um, Reed Hoffman, the guy who who founded LinkedIn, but one of the things he said that I always remembered is that the root of the word company is compane with bread and the idea that we break bread. And I've always been, I mean, this is true of our, my time in the fellowship with, with you, that the most meaningful experiences I almost always have with people is the experiences where you're breaking bread and that could be a beer or whatever, but the idea that you're, there's just something about that process where you're, you're all, maybe it's just that we're all at ease. and so you yeah. can share with a comfort and a confidence and a ease that is distinct from other environments.
1: Yes, and actually, in my coaching, I often say to people as they're navigating their way through perhaps challenging relationships, you've got to go break bread with them. That's yeah. exactly the expression I use.
0: I can't not talk about McKinsey, which is a, you know, just a fabled place of employ with the expectations and this sort of intellectual rigor. What's the primary impact, sort of the most usable components of your time there that you find applicable day to day?
1: The way it came about is, you know, you would think, oh, you went to business school. You must have set out to, like, go work at McKinsey. No, right, I set right. out in business school to open my own restaurant. Remember, that was my goal. Right. But then I heard that McKinsey was doing more and more in the food industry. And uh, we signed up for an interview. And I got an interview. And, I again, I wasn't particularly serious about it, which is obviously when we often show up in our best mode. And I had one conversation and then I made it to the next round with another conversation. And before I knew it, it was pretty real. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll meet all kinds of people. I'll stay there a year and see what that's like and learn about business. And then I'll open my restaurant. Famous last words. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, And I did everything in the food world that was available to me to do in terms of studies or even tangentially related, be it food or or liquor, And that was enormously fun and interesting and repositioning, you know, sort of chain restaurants. And OK, those weren't the kind of restaurants I envisioned opening. But what I learned was terrific. And what I learned in terms of becoming a manager and showing up with clients was terrific. And just the, the logic of the thinking that is so important at McKinsey, I really, really took
0: on how do we leverage our trauma or our pain or our challenges or whatever to do good to create positivity it's powerful <laughs> i mean i don't know i'm not sure anything's more powerful
1: i have thought about that in in terms of of this book you know my father attempted suicide which is how the book opens yeah and would he be okay with me being so public with this? And Mm. I thought about that so much. And I, in my heart, believe he would be, because if it's in service of others Mm -hmm. to grapple with some things, to answer some questions, to face their own dark spaces or ask questions about uh, their loved ones, I think he would be okay with it. And I hope that one of the main messages for folks for my book is that this is about ordinary people helping an ordinary person like me Hmm. on a path to understand more about my dad and my grandparents. Yeah. And these ordinary people helping me were what made it all happen. Yeah. And yes, I you know ran into some unexpected emotional whew, uh,
2: <laughs>
1: moments, which is part of, of what happens. But what I want to say is now's the time you need to talk to people in your lives. They're not going to be on this earth as long as you want them to be. Right. And so go pick up the phone and call that aunt. Go make that phone call. Go reach out. Go have that. Have a coffee with that relative. Yeah, do the searching now.
0: I want to ask about your mother a teensy bit. This description, you know, blew my mind. She tended not to waste time on empathy, and I thought to myself, "Well, Jesus, I feel like Karen taught me about empathy." You know, like one of the main things I needed when I was a fellow at Columbia with you was empathy—like to feel like someone cared and that I wasn't alone. So, <laughs> I just, how do you, how do you explain that uh, gap?
1: You would think I had been very close to my mother because of what you just said. I, yeah. I think I'm a real listener and I'm empathetic. And and my mother was not that. Um, and I wasn't as close to her. And I, not to sound cliche-ish, I believe she did the best she could do. Yeah. Um, but she wasn't that. And interestingly, I will say in writing the book, that was the hardest part of the book for me to write, was about my mother. And along the way, various folks who, who read earlier drafts wanted more about my mother in the book, which what is in there, I had to work hard to get in there. Right. So it was a challenge for me. And I sought out people in my life later who were called good mothers. And I think I learned from them.
2: Mm.
1: It was certainly in my DNA, I believe, the caring and the empathy But my mother was not someone, you know, any of us, uh, my brother, sister, I were, were sick or had to stay home from school. She was not the empathetic soul.
0: The book starts with your sharing that your father attempted suicide at 86 years old. And that began a journey for you to understand, ultimately, the source of that degree of sadness with greater specificity, right? Or that sense of grief or what might create that causality, that imperative that sense of despair and then we go back and really grow up with your father your grandparents and your father born in frankfurt germany your grandfather is in the tailor supply business your father gets into the shoe business hitler comes to power in 1933 rudy seeks your father seeks to emigrate in 1935 as it becomes apparent that that's no place to be period and leaves for the united states in 1936. And then in the intervening six years, you share these rich correspondences and then they, between them, and then those correspondences slow and then stop. And in 1942, we learn thanks to your sleuthing and your real diligence at sort of pursuing what happened that your grandfather succumbed to malnutrition in the woods ghetto of Poland mm-hmm. and your grandmother commits suicide herself in 1945. And this is that, this is such an epic, your father returns as a soldier marches from France to Germany, back to Frankfurt as a member of Patton's army, goes to his old home, goes to the factory that he worked in, has his hand on the door, Karen. I mean, this is great writing, madam, um, but what an epic, epic, epic journey. It was so cinematic for me. So then you get us to him, in essence, liberating Buchenwald. Your dad said of Buchenwald, the image stays with you forever. And he said, "Of Frankfurt, you can't go home again. Do those quotes speak to the torment, you think? What I would expect is a torment and despair that would have led to that moment for your father, to that moment where he just said, I can't anymore.
1: Yes, I think he bravely pushed himself to go back when he voluntarily joined the army. His employer at the time said, we, we could do something to keep you just employed. You don't need to do this. And he, he said, who better than I should be serving? Yeah. I should be there. I need to do this. I mean, he didn't know at that point he was going to be helping to liberate Buchenwald, but he felt so compelled to serve. It was very strong. And then this notion of, um, going back, I, I still, Cannot imagine how he went back to Frankfurt yeah. after it had all been bombed and, and seeing his house that was bombed out on the top floor and mm. going to places where the buildings didn't exist anymore, you know, going into the synagogue that he grew up in, right. ended up housing armaments during, you know, from Hitler. Um, how did he do that? And how did he march through Buchenwald? And how did he see these bodies that well could have been his parents? Um, I, I don't know how he did that. I can only assume it gave him, brought him a little bit closer to what it must have been like for them
0: your grandmother wrote to your father in one of her correspondences. um, I will always accompany you in your new homeland uh, Mm -hmm. after he had moved and she was still back in Germany. And you ask your father what she meant and he responds, I don't know. I don't know. And I wondered, do you think he did know? And do you know now, like, do you have a sense of what she meant or whether or not he knew? Well,
1: first let me start by saying that's a, a really poignant example of asking the question too late. Mm. And um, that's pretty painful for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's why, as I said before, make the calls now, to do the research now, to talk to people in your life now. Um, That's a question that I think he assumed that they would eventually come. And yet, with the letters, you know, over time, it became, they didn't have a sense of urgency. You know, there was, that, that letter was written in November 17th of 1936. And believe it or not, they didn't have a sense of urgency. They figured, we're old, which means late 50s and early 60s, by the way, back then. Yeah. They're not going to bother with us. My grandfather had served in World War One. He was, quote, in good standing. They're not going to bother with us. they right, have seen right. glimmers of this, you know, back in the time of World War I days. It's going to pass. So there wasn't an urgency until probably too late. Yeah. So I think he thought and hoped eventually they'd come, but, um, but no.
0: Do you think he is the subtext or the unspoken that he felt he should have done more?
1: That is my guess, um, but I don't know. I don't yeah. know exactly what his efforts were. I know a little bit about his efforts. Like, had he just tried this one other place? Had he just knocked on these three other doors? Had he just been more insistent? I assume that was something that haunted him.
0: Well, Salomea says to you, if it is bitterness and angerness. You hold in your heart, it will kill you. Yeah. Do you think that's what led your father to the garage? And do you think he healed in his remaining years or healed some in his remaining years?
1: So I don't think it was bitterness and anger that drove him there. I think it was a way, the only way he knew to almost join in with his parents.
0: Mm, I see.
1: He actually, there he was in the garage, creating his own private Yes, in a way. Mm. So he didn't know the specifics. He knew about his mother having committed suicide, but he did not know whatever happened to his dad. So for him to do that was really a way to be closer to them.
0: How do you think of forgiveness in the face of just such disgusting, shocking atrocity, such grief and loss? What does forgiveness look like to you? What does it feel like now? And do you think your father ever forgave himself?
1: I don't think he forgave himself. And I think that is indeed what drove him to the attempt. Right. What does forgiveness look like for me? Um, It's almost like if you think about grabbing onto monkey bars, if you don't let go, you can't move forward. Mm. And honestly, there's something about letting go. And I think the process of this book and the process of living with the uncovering and the knowledge and the experience and the getting closer to all these events in my father's and grandparents' lives, I think I got to that point of it's really important to move on and There is the classic, we can forgive but not forget, but I I really believe there's an enormous amount to that in terms of having the ability to move forward.
0: Your father's last letter, he said, you'll have to figure out how to master the difficulties because it must happen. We place our hope in you. Have you mastered the difficulties and do you have hope?
1: I feel that it is an ongoing process of mastering those difficulties. And yes, I have hope Mm. in my father's last letter to us, his children that he wrote something known as an ethical will, actually, in which he talks about his regrets. And then he gives a directive of don't forget my parents.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Always light that yardside candle again, that memorial candle. And for me, I feel like I took that very much to heart. I mean, I ended up writing a book about it. Um, The process of writing this book not only helped me find the way, but to give me hope. I feel it, it really did give me some deeper understanding of my father, gave me some resolution and gave me hope that this story is not going to just stop with me and more so that other people will reach out and continue to ask the questions that they need to ask.
0: Evil, Fred Rogers once said, would like nothing better than to have us feel awful about who we are. As my coach, Karen spent a fair amount of time doing precisely the opposite. In order to be a better leader at work, but moreover, better for myself, Karen encouraged me to lean into my family, my time in nature, and with a guitar in my hands. She helped me take the long view and address individual challenges with time-tested, well-reasoned approaches to incremental problem solving. She reminded me to stay humble and patient and proactive, but also responsive to the ebb and flow of real life. In the last letter, Karen models this on every page. She shows us step-by-step How to stay curious and vigilant, to look for the helpers, and mention the unmentionable in order to be the change we want to see in the world. There is no life free of pain, Fred Rogers said. It is the very wrestling with our problems that is the impetus for growth. Friends and Neighbors is a Wagner Brothers production. Download the podcast on Apple, stream it on Spotify, watch it on Facebook or YouTube, and subscribe to our newsletter at friendsandneighborshow.com. And if you're moved or inspired by what you're hearing here, please share it with your friends and neighbors. Until next week, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends.